0: I'm Erwin Raphael-Ikanis, and this is the Genius of Podcast. Podcast. Uh, today I have a really special guest. He's one of my uh, closest friends. His name is John Gordon. He's the author of 24 different books. Probably the most popular is The Energy Bus. Uh, he has a book called The Garden, where one of his characters is called Mr. Erwin. Uh, John speaks to uh, Fortune 500 companies and uh, major league sporting. Um, organizations, whether it's the NFL, NBA, whether it's uh, college football teams from the Los Angeles Dodgers to a Clemson University football team. Uh, he has this amazing ability to infect a culture with optimism and positive mindsets that elevates talent to greatness. And so I'm really excited. We're gonna talk about the particular genius inside of John Gordon. We're gonna talk about the genius of positivity. And we're gonna talk about how to uh, transfer some of that uh, positive genius into your life. So would you welcome John Gordon to the Genius Of podcast. John Gordon, it is so exciting to have you here on the Genius Of. Great to be with you. And I know that uh, you would never identify yourself or call yourself a genius, and, um, and yet, We're here because I am identifying some incredible genius inside of you. And I want, uh, people to get to know just a little bit of your journey and, and more importantly than like getting to where you are now, because that's a lot of times people want to get where you are now, but they don't really understand the journey and the struggle and the challenges that were part of the process. So I kind of want to go to the beginning of the story as if the people listening don't know anything about you. And I mean, I, You've written, what, 26 different books? 24 books. Now. 24. Okay, see, I, I'm a futurist, so I'm looking into the future. <laughs> and 24 different books. Uh, probably your best-selling book has been The Energy Bus. Energy Bus. And it's kind of uh, put you on the map, but not right away. It took a little while for that book to catch momentum mm-hmm. and and explode. And you've written a book that uses a, a character with me in it yes. called The Garden. The Garden. And, uh, and uh, your most recent book is Rel- Relationship Grit. Relationship grit and then stick together came out after that, the and sorry. then row the boat just came out. The one I wrote with PJ Fleck. You are prolific. You write books the way other people cook pancakes, or <laughs> you know it's 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 amazing. And we're going to talk a little bit about the process because I think there's genius in your writing process that would be so helpful to many people. Uh, but more than that, um, uh, you have a tremendous impact in some really really interesting. Um, mediums, whether it's uh, sports and business, and I, which I think are the two most significant uh, arenas that you really are making an impact in. Uh, a lot of um, impact with coaches and key players, uh, teams that have won championships. It seems like every time I, I, uh, I turn on ESPN, there's a team that you've been working with, a coach you've been working with, players you've been working with, that that team wins the national championship, wins the NBA championship, wins the Major League Baseball championship. And so you you you, you, um, you you seem to know how to put people into a, a championship mindset. Is that- Or oh, I show that? up at the right time. Yeah, or you're- As ready?
1: they're on the rise, I show up, I speak, when they're just getting going. Or perhaps the coach recognizes that this team has potential mm-hmm. and they're ready to go to the next level or they're looking for something. Mm-hmm. And I seem to always show up when that team is just about to embark and go on the next level.
0: It kind of makes you a great um, a leadership surfer. You, you know how to catch the right wave. Right. And there's genius in that. Right. But I also think it's that coaches know that their team is on the brink of greatness, mm-hmm. and they just need to add some component, some element to it, that they need to bring an outside voice to it. Great point. I, I believe that too. Yeah, And that's a part of their genius is right. they, they know how to bring uh, together what's necessary to achieve greatness in that moment. And I think it's true for you in the business sector. So many people in the business world have uh, brought you in to deal with, help their companies uh, move toward a, a healthy culture. Right. And and that's in many ways a part of what's happening now. But I want to go back. I know you. You're from Long. Is it uh, Long Island? Island? Long Island, New York. Smithtown yeah. is where I was born and where I
1: grew up. A place called Niskasset, which is actually a smaller part of Smithtown.
0: Well, that, I can hear a little bit of, uh, of that East Coast accent <laughs> is still in you. But, I, I mean, we're personal friends, and I've known you for quite a while. And I, one of the unique things I know about you is that you are 99% Ashkenazi Jew. And, uh, but you were not raised in a Jewish uh, home, in a sense, because your biological father is Jewish. But the, the dad who raised you is Italian. Right. right. And my mom was Jewish. So both right. parents were
1: biologically Jewish by heritage. Right. And my biological father left when I was a year old. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was a single mom for sure. a little while. Uh, Jewish, Jewish grandparents. Very culturally mm-hmm. Jewish, but not religious Jewish. And then my mom married my dad, my technically well, my stepfather, who raised me since I was five years old. He was a New York City police officer. Wow. Undercover narcotics, uh, very Italian. And a very loving man. Not the most positive guy in the world, <laughs> but a very loving dad. And I'll never forget, he said to me and my brother, he said, I want you to call me dad. I'm going to raise you as my own. Mm. And he did. And that love and who he was really had a huge impact on me and my life. So we celebrated Hanukkah. We celebrated Christmas. We celebrated all the holidays, but we never went to church, <laughs> never went to temple. wasn't about that at all. It was about just Family mm-hmm. gathering, I still remember the Italian family gatherings for Easter and Christmas in the basement in Queens, <laughs> New York, right, with a spread of food that we ate all day long. So that was the kind of family I grew up in. Then we'd go to the Jewish family for the Jewish holidays and we'd celebrate Passover and we had the Jewish side. So culturally, I had these- So you had both cultures really influencing both cultures. who you were,
0: both Jewish and uh, yeah. Italian. A lot of food, a lot of guilt. <laughs> And uh, I think that might actually transcend just uh, not only just Jewish and Italian culture, but a lot of passion. Right, a lot lot um, of passion, a lot of fire. Not the
1: most positive family, a lot of probably negativity and so fighting, did, that, drama.
0: That, that, did that negativity uh, seep into you and become a part of who you were as a person? I would say so. I mean, I think I was naturally wired towards negativity.
1: <laughs> and Not so, a lot of people
0: would say that about themselves. Yeah, but
1: I believe you know, I was. Yeah. I mean, I was an optimistic person in terms of sports and I wanted the starting position. I believed I can get I did well in school. I is learned. that
0: optimistic or is that competitive?
1: Probably competitive, but optimistic in terms of I thought I can go do something. That you could accomplish I something. could accomplish I saw And I saw a, a great future for myself. Like I wanted to be president of the United <laughs> States when I was a kid, right? So I saw that I could do something great. I wanted to influence. It would have been really
0: helpful if you had become president, <laughs> by the way. <laughs>
1: exactly. I think I could do a, a better job uh, than most lately. So um, in my in my journey, yes, I so I had this positivity part of me, but naturally negative in terms of worry and fear and concern. And I would say I probably struggled with depression Mm -hmm. at one point. I remember telling my mom I was depressed and I was (laughs) suicidal and I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to kill myself. How old were you? Probably at 12, 13-year-old oh, range, which is when your sure. hormones and everything is going on. And my mom freaked out so bad. Like, what do you mean? And when she went all crazy, I went, mom, mom, it's okay. I'm fine. And I think that stabbed me out of it. I was like more worried about her being okay sure. than than what I was dealing with. Probably, you know, I need therapy now to deal with that. <laughs> but but it was something I was trying to help her with instead of deal with my own probably issues at the time. But yeah, I, I naturally went towards the negative in those ways. And and then just had a lot of issues and challenges, I would say, growing up, probably with the abandonment of my father biologically. Mm. We'd go over his house on weekends and So you did know him? I knew him and we would see him on weekends and so forth. And but it was always awkward. It never felt like a safe place. Never felt like we really belonged. And so we would go over there, and we even took a couple vacations together that always turned disastrous, mm-hmm. and I would get sick, and something bad would happen. And so there was always challenges along that way. I never felt really at home in many ways. And then on, my, on our side, like my dad who raised me, my stepfather, he had three children from a previous family, from, wow. from, from a previous marriage. So you're in a really complex family so, so complex. Family I, wrote, I, wrote an ar- I wrote an article, an essay in college called The Quiet Calm in the Mist of Turmoil. Mm -hmm. Because when it was just us, it was like this quiet, calm of a family. But then we always had turmoil coming in and out. So what was it like
0: being a part of his extended family? um,
1: Really close now. Love them now. When we were younger, I'm the youngest of all. And so they were struggling in their adolescent years. You know, they really had a lot of challenges living with their mom, not having their dad there. And so they would come over and they would bring in a lot of their challenges and issues along the way with a lot of their hurt and brokenness came into our family and my life so i had to learn how to almost uh, really just focus on like my world mm-hmm. and not allow all that to to come in and 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 i always saw people moving in and out in and out of my life mm. which i think in many ways was was easy for me to just let go of people at different times and when my dad would be mad at you know his kids like well they're out of the family and so you basically were like Okay, they're not part of our family now. But then they'd come back. Okay, they're back sure. in. And so it was always like this this uh, this struggle of and this give and take of. Okay, they're in, they're out. Who do we need to love? Who should we hate right now? And it was a lot of that. Because my dad was a near cop, so he always saw the world in terms of like the world is out to get you, and you have to be strong to take on this world. Wow. All
0: right. So you grew up in this deep. uh, yeah deeply. Uh, Complex family, blended family on both sides. And uh, you have the two cultures. You have a culture of maybe pessimism and negativity, almost paranoia. Right. You know, it's us against the world. The world's out to get you. And it seems to me that one of the places you found some uh, refuge was in lacrosse.
1: Right. I would say sports in general. Yeah, sports in general. Played football. Basketball was a lot better when I was younger than when we play. (laughs) And... And then started playing lacrosse when I was in ninth grade. Wow,
0: that's really young.
1: Yeah, in ninth grade. So, never played before. Tried to quit, wasn't very good. The coach said, you're not quitting. One day, you're gonna play in college. Tony mm-hmm. Chiazza. He said, one day you're gonna play in the Ivy League. Wow. I didn't even know what the Ivy League was. <laughs> I didn't. My parents weren't big on college in terms of like, they you know they weren't a big, um, you know, educators or they didn't go to college themselves even. So for, for me, it was, uh, Okay, Ivy League sounds good. I don't know what it is, but, but I'll keep on playing. So I kept on playing and we uh, would go to
0: Cornell University and that experience definitely changed me and impacted me in, in many ways. That's amazing. So, so you go to Cornell, Did you have a pretty strong sense of self, and a strong sense of identity at that time or were you still trying to figure out who you were or did you feel like there was greatness inside of you then or were you, or or you living with a sense that you couldn't figure out what you were great at? What was going on inside of your own journey then? Yeah, going there, I had a sense of confidence
1: from athletics. Okay. I had been named all county. I had a great senior year. We went to the playoffs, had all these awards and recognition. So I went there with a lot of confidence, like mm-hmm. kid, from Long Island had the gold chain, the tank top, no. the Camaro. I was straight no. out of Long Island.
0: Yeah, y- photographs? Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. we want some photographs yeah. sent our way. We're gonna, was... we're gonna we're gonna post these.
1: <laughs> it was so bad that my friends in college wore my regular clothes as their Halloween costumes. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, not much has changed since okay. then. So, so so they um, they did that. That's true. But I learned about culture there. You know, a lot of my friends were, were wealthy and had privilege. And my parents never made more than $30,000 a year, you know, mm. combined. So my dad retired from the police force after 20 years. And so he lived off his retirement, started a nonprofit, uh, a youth league, actually, a youth sports league. Wow. And so he was very involved in that. And I played for those youth sports leagues. So I went there with a sense of, of confidence and belief that I could do well there. Didn't know what my genius was. But I wanted to go to law school. I knew that and I wanted to get into politics. So that was sort of what was driving me at the time. I was a government
0: economics major, but I would say I really majored in lacrosse, you know, in college. <laughs> so ironically, everything that was driving you in terms of a larger ambition were things that you ended up never doing. Which is, which is really Or not succeeding. At- well, yeah, because I,
1: I ran for city council of Atlanta when I moved to Atlanta after college. And how old were you then? I was 26, 27. And how did
0: that go for you?
1: I walked door to door to 7,000 houses. So again, oh, competitive, <laughs> ambitious, right? But
0: hard working, wow.
1: Raised $30,000 yeah. from various people, put a billboard up in the middle of town. I mean, I was winning. I was winning the election. They did polls and I was winning. And then everyone came after me in a very negative way because they saw me as a threat we were running against a 20 year incumbent. And so there was three of us running against a 20 year incumbent. They knew that they had to get me out of the way to get into a runoff with the incumbent. So everyone started to attack me who was in the lead to try to get into the runoff. Wow. And at 26, 27 with no experience, never did this before. It was probably one of the most negative experiences of my life. And I I take it you did not win. I did not win. At the time I thought it was, you know, the end of my life. I felt mm. like my dream is over. But I realized you have to lose a goal to find your destiny. No, oh, that's good. Because I had this goal, but I had to lose that to find what I was really meant to do. Because I might still be in Atlanta. Maybe I would have run for mayor. Maybe would have run for something else. But I would have been dealing with potholes as a city councilman, dealing with that instead of finding my purpose and calling doing this. But yeah, a, a, it was, a, it was a, a cool journey. But government economics led me do that. I went to law school for a year and a half. Before that, dropped out of law school, realized it wasn't for me. Actually, law school came after that because I lost the election. I said, what am I going to do now? Because I had a restaurant at the time. And I ran for, and after running for city council, I went to law school.
0: Now, I know you had a restaurant. You, had, yeah. you were a bartender. Yep. Yeah. And so you, you, uh, you were bartending a place and you bought that restaurant? Next door. So I moved to Atlanta right after college. So okay. I graduated college. And I had a
1: girlfriend in Texas, and we broke up. And so I drove back from Texas, heartbroken, went to go live with my parents. I'm waiting tables at the local Houlihan's restaurant. So you're really
0: going places. And I'm like,
1: what am I doing with my life? All my friends are working on Wall Street. They have got great jobs out of Cornell. And here I am, waiting tables at Hands, living with my parents. Like My life is over. So I am thinking at that point, I got to do something. I've got to do something with with my life. So I started asking people, hey, where should I move? I want to move to an up and coming city. And people said either San Fran or Atlanta. Atlanta was on the East Coast. I said, all right, I'm going to Atlanta. It's a young city. It's happening right before the Olympics. Mm. And I moved down to Atlanta with a a car, some clothes. I get a job at the Hands in Atlanta. So I transfer (laughs) there. I'm waiting tables. And I remember I'm making like $20 a shift. And while I'm waiting tables, I'm thinking, okay, there's got to be a better way to make more money. And so I'm supporting myself at that Mm -hmm. point. I signed up for for Emory. I got into Emory to get my master's in teaching. Mm -hmm. So I have that going on, but I've got to make some more money. So I decided to walk around Buckhead one day, Buckhead, Atlanta, where all the bars and restaurants were. And I'm looking for a bartending job. And I showed up to this bar. Guy was sitting right outside. It was a place called Bar. I'm like, okay, I could do that. And I said, hey, you looking for bartenders? He said, yeah, we actually were just opening up and we're looking. He goes, have you bartended before? I said, I I absolutely have. I had never bartended in my life. He goes, you got to try out tonight. You got to try out tonight. Wow. Yeah. So I went home. I turned on the movie Cocktail. I put that DVD. DVD. It was actually a VCR at the time. Training video. Yeah. So watch Cocktail, Tom Cruise, flipping the bottles. I bought a a book on recipes. Couldn't remember the recipes. Showed up that night. And next thing you know, people are coming in. And ordering all sorts of drinks that I do not know how to make. And I'm working with this guy, that I'm like, that, what do I do? He goes, serve it red, serve it with a smile. And so people are coming. I'm just acting like I know what I'm doing. And I'm just grabbing this and going like that. And people are walking away going, like, this is horrible. <laughs> At the end of the night, they came up to me. They said, hey, it's clear you have no idea what you're doing. But we love your energy. Wow. And we like the way you interact with people and your attitude. So we're going to hire you. we're going to train you. So I got the job and then I learned how to bartend. Next thing you know, I'm making great money. One guy was stealing at the top bar, which was downstairs Mm -hmm. and they let him go and they put me in that spot. So now I'm making $600 every weekend, just bartending cash back in the nineties while I'm going to get my master's in teaching, doing that, I'm making money. So now I'm making that money, which I thought, okay, it's great. But I'm standing on the corner, and there was a place next door to us called Beasley's. Richard Beasley was the owner. And Buckhead at the time was was transitioning from a restaurant place to more of a bar and nightlife place. And I had this vision of Richard Beasley's place because it had nice wood of of a, a place that had live acoustic music in a nice wood setting. And I said, hey, Richard, I'm on the corner talking to him. Would you ever sell this place? He goes, everything's for sale. I'm 24 years old. Wow. So my grandmother, when she had passed away, she had left me Mm $20,000. And so that's all I had. My parents, again, weren't wealthy, so I had this money. And I said, I'm gonna buy this place. And I found several investors, and we all went in together to buy this this place. We we called it Park Bench Mm -hmm. and live acoustic music, and we turned it into a really happening, incredible spot, like right away. And now I went from $20,000 investment, I started making about $100,000 a year. You know, I'm 24 years old as this bar owner doing that. But then I started a nonprofit called the Phoenix organization that raised money and volunteered for youth-focused charities. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make a difference. And so what happened was I was meeting all these people at the bars, getting them involved in the Phoenix to to now raise money and impact youth-focused charities. So we started to do that. And that was pretty cool. And that's what led me to meet all these different influential people, which then led me to
0: then run for city council.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, so that was sort of like the journey along.
0: That's like an early life that a lot of people don't know about, right? But there's an incubator inside of you. There's something there that um, other people wouldn't have seen the possibility of of buying that restaurant. Even if they had $20,000, they they would have seen that $20,000 as the limit of what they had. You saw that as almost uh, the fuel to create more. Right. And what do you think was inside of you that allowed you to see a possibility that others would have never seen? Was it, was it fear of failure? Was it, was it uh, you know, vision? Like, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people who have been incredibly successful. And for a lot of them, it's, it's almost like they're driven by a fear that they might be poor right. or unsuccessful. And at the same time, other times they're driven by a passion for something they want to create. I mean, did you love the restaurant business? No. Was this, it, I know.
1: was naive enough to be successful. But more importantly, I had a desire to become more. Mm. that's what I think it is a desire to become more that I could do this that I could become more in my life that I could succeed I think that's a a drive if I look back in the themes of my life Mm -hmm. it's a desire to become more and do more and create more don't know again it hasn't always been healthy Mm -hmm. right but it's driven to driven me to and led to a lot of things
0: you know I, I wonder if sometimes you know people underestimate the uh, the power of sports, right. you know, because if you don't go play pro, what it feels like. Well, didn't you just waste your life playing basketball or right. football or lacrosse? But I, I wonder if some of that that drive was nurtured and developed in your athletic environment, right? You know, become you know, developing confidence as a lacrosse player, realizing there are some things that if you worked hard enough, you could pull the skill sets together to get better and better, and then suddenly it translates into quote being an entrepreneur in the business world. Uh, because I, I I find that a lot of people think that successful people have opportunities that they didn't get. Right. But the reality is that those opportunities were available for so many people. But then there's an unusual person who's bartending, and that would have been a huge accomplishment. Right. Right. You know, you 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 didn't know anything about. Right. <laughs> you know about spirits, and all of a sudden you're a bartender. So you could have been satisfied going, "Wow." I'm a, I'm a bartender now. Yep. And yet you walk outside and you see something that has the potential to create a different future.
1: And I think part of that too, I remember thinking, there's got to be a better way. I can make more money. People are coming to see me all the time at this bar I'm bartending at. Why shouldn't I make money if they're coming to see me at my own bar, right? Mm. So I should be the one who's bringing people to my own place. Rather than making money for this owner, I should become the owner myself. But what makes me think that I should be the owner in the first mm. place? And I always believe that it's possible. I think that's mm-hmm. the thing too, is I just have this belief that it's possible. Why not me? Mm-hmm. And why shouldn't it be possible? But I really believe in many ways that was instilled by my parents because they really did instill in me that I could become anything. Mm. You know, again, they, they had many flaws in many ways, but they always had this belief that I could do anything and I can work hard and play in sports. When I had to fight for my starting position all the time, but even when I won the position, the next year, it wasn't guaranteed. I had to fight for it again. Right. On the depth chart, they put another guy in front of me. I felt like, oh, he always had to fight for credibility, mm. for that recognition. I always had to fight to prove myself. We see it in a lot of people, right? Tom Brady yeah. always has this desire, even now, to prove himself. Yeah. Because Absolutely. coming out of college, they didn't think he could make it. Drew Brees, desire to prove himself, right? A lot, a lot of the, the great performers always feel like this – they have this desire to be great or to prove that they
0: can do it. And so you're, you're, you now have this restaurant Yeah. and you go outside one day and you see a girl walking down the street.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so after
0: three weeks of being open,
1: she's walking down the street and I saw her. It was, it was love at first sight. For her it took a few years, but for me it was <laughs> love at first sight. And, and that was Catherine. And I said, hey, come on in, I'm having a party. And she came in, there wasn't a party really, but she came in, we talked for a little bit. I said, well, I'm having a party Friday night, come back. She goes, oh, okay. And uh, she didn't come back. (laughs) So about a week later, I'm at the Best of Atlanta charity event. Mm -hmm. And there she is. I saw her across the room, like, that's her. Ran up to her, remember me? She was like, yeah. She was eating cheesecake. She could care less that I was standing there in front of her. She said to this day there was a guy she was talking to at that time, but I sort of like just brushed him aside and moved him out of the way and just started talking to her. Mm. And uh, said, you got to give me your number. Like, I- I've got to take you out on a date. So she gave me her card, which really was just to blow me off and
0: get me, get rid of me at that time. But I called her up and finally she agreed to go out with me. So there's already something inside of you that sees possibilities. In that, even in that, right? There's something inside of you that um, is, risks failure. Like you risk rejection. Yes. Because when you chase down a strange girl that you know doesn't know you from Adam and has no interest in you, and you still... Right. You know, um, <laughs> you refuse to not try. Yeah. And clearly you succeeded. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, I, because I think sometimes people don't realize there's, there's certain mental constructs that are formed inside of people who succeed and you begin to see the incubator of those things early on in a person's life right and but there's also like a dark side because you guys end up getting married yeah and you um uh, and you ended up having a crisis where uh, i have a quote here somewhere um it says, after being told you were negative and miserable and had to change by your wife. Um, and I thought, wait a minute, this is so interesting because I know Catherine too. and right. And she's pretty straightforward. She is straightforward. So how long were you married before you end up having this crisis in your own life? The, the problem started even after,
1: you know, we started dating. I mean, we didn't have <laughs> a, a great dating experience. It was like this. At first it was. I should say at first it was really romantic and incredible. But very quickly, my issues came up of jealousy, of not feeling like I was enough, unworthiness. just strange issues that really came up. And so we had a lot of issues. We had a lot of fights. I was not a great boyfriend or early husband, small children. I was so focused at that point. Okay, I'm now, again, I'm a driver. Mm -hmm. I want to perform. I want to succeed. The restaurant's going, but. There's more that I have to do to provide for my family. And it's also not enough in my mind for what we need for our future. I don't see myself now as a restaurant owner for the rest of my life. What am I going to do? Went to law school right after Jade was born. Mm. That's probably not a good idea. You know, I left after a year and a half. I go work for a dot-com. And that's when it really came to a head. I'm working for this dot-com. I'm really negative. I'm not loving this job, even though I thought it was going to be great, Mm -hmm. Now I'm working for a company, I'm no longer my own boss. Right. I'm being told what to do. I'm a director of business development. And so I'm no longer my own boss. I have to go to an office every day. I lost my autonomy. My partners at that point were not being forthright with the income we're bringing in. My dividends are going down. I'm not as involved in the restaurant. So this thing where I love doing what I was doing, I'm now working and doing a job that I don't really love, but I felt like I was doing it to make my fortune. Mm-hmm. i thought i was going to make a fortune because i had eighty thousand shares this is during the dot com everyone's getting funded i'm making hundred thousand dollars a year at that time which is a lot this is 1998 1999 i left law school to go do this and it's not going well so our marriage isn't going well i'm not feeling them enough we're fighting a lot i'm being a jerk to her i'm allowing the stress and the fear to to make me into someone that i never wanted to be and so in that moment she had enough of my negativity. I was never abusive or anything, but she just had my, enough of my negativity. Like always blaming and complaining about why my life was not the way <laughs> it should be because of right. her. Mm-hmm. I was blaming her and the kids and the pressure and the stress. And she said if you don't change like we're over. Like that's it. And that was the best wake up call I ever got because I wanted to stay married. I looked in the mirror. I didn't like who I was. I was like where was that young where's that young guy who was so optimistic? Who believed anything was possible? Like now, I'm living this world where I feel stuck. Have the house, I have this job. We moved to Jacksonville, Florida. Decided to move, sell my piece of the restaurant back to uh, my partners. Moved down to Jacksonville. I'm working for this com, and then I get fired by the company because they basically go under. Wow. So I made a lot of cuts. A lot of people got fired. They kept me on, kept me on, kept me on because I sold the NFL on NFL Wireless. Mm. NFL Wireless. We were the first company to help the NFL bring scores and data to wireless devices, which is like that now. Yeah, Yeah. that while now now it's like you expect it, right? Let me get that on my phone right now. So we were the first to do that, actually, and so that experience, you know, kept me going with the job because I sold the NFL. But I eventually lost the job when they ran out of money. I'll never forget losing the job. I turned pale white. How am I going to support my family? We just bought this house in Jacksonville. How am I gonna make a living? Didn't know what to do. Second mortgaged our home, $20,000 in credit cards and opened the first Moe's Southwest Grill Burrito place in Florida. There was five at the time. We, actually we were the fifth and there are now over 300 of those restaurants mm. but we opened that first Moe's and the goal was to hopefully make enough money that would allow me to then to write and speak. Because at that point after Catherine threatened to leave me, I remember saying, what am I born to do? why am i here i know i'm here for a reason and why am i so miserable and mm. i realized i was so miserable because i wasn't living my purpose mm. and i went back to when i did the phoenix organization that's when i was happiest monthly meetings speaking to the to the audience rallying people together making a difference in the community that's when i felt best it wasn't even on the restaurants it was doing the phoenix and mm. that's what i loved the most i said okay Writing and speaking is sort of like that. I'll get to write, I'll get to speak, I'll get to make a difference and encourage people, inspire people the way I thought of people who inspired me years past. People like Ken Blanchard Mm -hmm. and the One Minute Manager and Richard Bach, Illusions and Jonathan Livingston Segal were books I read years ago and those books inspired me. So okay, I wanna do that. So that was about 2000, 2001 that I made a decision to do that and then opened up uh, the the first restaurant to hopefully make enough money that would allow me to then do that.
0: And how did Mo's go?
1: Not good at first. Not good at first at all. We were almost bankrupt several times. Mm. We're running out of cash. We put everything we had. I violated all business plans. I had no savings. So we were trying to break even, make enough, and keep that money going as long as we could until we got more the next week. Out of the blue, I got a call from a friend who wanted to learn about wireless technology for his company. It It was a friend of a friend. They called me up. Yeah, we know you sell... You sold wireless technology for this company. I said, I don't know about the technology, but so I don't know if I can help you. They said, no, we want to just learn how to sell it. Just help us sell it. So they paid me $13,000 for six weeks of consulting. Came out of the blue. It was God. It was God. And we were carried during that time with that money. We lived off that money. And as that last dime ran out, the restaurant made its first profit. I'll never forget. And I just taught them about wireless technology. That was it, it was the easiest job that I ever had. <laughs> and that support us and we made our first profit. And then shortly after that, I said, okay, I think I'm gonna try to start writing and speaking now. And a woman was in my restaurant, her name was Robin Wabi. She was the managing partner of New York Life Insurance. And I was talking to her, I was wearing you know, my outfit. No one thought I was the owner because I was only 29, 30 years old mm-hmm. and I'm wiping tables down. And I start talking to her. I said, well, I'm the owner of this place. She said, oh, great. I said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a speaker. I'm a writer and speaker, just like I was a bartender. And she goes, oh, you should come speak to my company. I said, OK, great. And that was the first talk I ever gave was to her company in Jacksonville. Wow. I tried to get out of it. She said, no, no, you have to give it. I talked about success is about the little things hmm. and about how people can drain your energy, which I called energy vampires, which was I would put in the energy bus later on. And that began this journey of now going. Okay, maybe I could start writing and speaking. But Kathy will tell you, like I just gave talks everywhere and anywhere. She'll tell you I wasn't very good, and I and I wasn't. And I just, but I was willing to, I guess, face rejection and failure just to get out and start doing it.
0: Mm. Well, there's just so many people that find themselves so unhappy with the life that they've created, and they feel trapped, and um, it's unfulfilling. And they, um, and I think it's so important for, for people to realize that that's exactly how you felt and that's, right. that's where you were, but there's a way out of that. Right. But it doesn't come without risk. It doesn't come without some failure and, okay. um, and maybe even some pain in the process.
1: It was a lot of pain and it was a lot of risk and there were failures along the way, but for me, not going for it, like it wasn't an mm-hmm. option. Like I, I had to, because I remember thinking, I feel like I'm dying every day instead of living. Mm. And I don't wanna spend my life living this way. And I think too often people are comfortable Mm -hmm. and they don't wanna go after the thing they truly want. A lot of times they get a job, they're making money, they really wanna do something else, but now they have a job. They have a home, a mortgage. They have their wife, they have their kids. So then they basically trap themselves into living this life to support their family. And they blame, their family for why they don't enjoy their life.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And I knew that I didn't want to do that. Like I had to go for it, failure I And Catherine was so great. We got to give her all the credit because I remember <laughs> saying like, "I'm gonna go do this," and she said, "Let's go for it."
0: Oh, that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I said, "Let's move to Jacksonville." She said, "Okay, let's go. We're young. If it doesn't go, if it doesn't work out, I so let 'Let's open the restaurant.' Okay, great. We might go bankrupt, but okay, it's all right. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll find a way." So I think she was really more the optimistic one because I would bounce ideas off of her, and she would say, "Okay, well yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it." So she always seemed to have this willingness to say, let's go for it. Even at times when I didn't believe, she believed in many ways for us.
0: So it's interesting because she didn't need security. She just needed you to be a better human being. Wow. (laughs) Such a great point. Yes. (laughs) She wasn't looking for someone to make her safe.
1: Yeah. She was looking for someone who loved her and
0: treated her great. It's almost like she didn't need you to make her safe. She needed you to be safe, Mm. to be a safe person for her. That's so good. So
1: true.
0: uh, So this is about the time we meet. Yeah, somewhere in here, or actually, we we interact on on your podcast. Yeah, and um, and my first memory of you is that you were an energy coach. I know that's not the language you use now, but at that time, <laughs> yes, that was a part of you know the dynamic. And, and I think it's because you are really um, aware of the negative effect of negative energy, right? And and of a, of an unhealthy culture of of pessimism and negativity and uh, energy vampires. Yeah. And at the same time, I think your own personal journey was a journey of fighting against the negative energy and pulling out of yourself positive energy. And at that time, you um, you didn't really have a, a, a real personal understanding of who Jesus was. And there yeah. wasn't a, a sense of, of, I don't think of personal faith, but, but you were more of a Buddhist in the way you described yourself. In fact, my first understanding yeah. of you is that you were a Jewish Buddhist energy coach. That's the way that you were described to me by your friend Daniel Decker. Yeah. So I, I believed
1: in God and I always had this sense that God existed mm-hmm. and that there was a God who loved me. So that, that's, that's, that's technically cool. not Buddhist. Right. You know, I technically believed in God. Right. Because
0: Buddhism is an atheistic
1: Right. Philosophy. And that believes in nothingness. Right. right. So I believed in God and I remember laying on the grass at camp looking up. Mm -hmm. and knowing that there was a God who loved me and that was watching Mm -hmm. me. And I would lay out and look at the stars at night and I felt God's presence in those moments.
0: So the Buddhism part probably came from your language of energy. My language of energy. And also
1: I started practicing meditation. Okay. So I was doing meditation to try to find peace. Right. To try to find happiness, to try to find joy because I couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for it in other things. I was a seeker. Mm -hmm. So that brought me to Buddhism, reading some books on Buddhism, which was about meditation, which... Again in many ways was a blessing for my journey because that Buddhism led me to meditate and in those meditations I started to find stillness and quietness but it's also when God started to to move through my life. So around that time, yeah, we wanted you on the podcast or the show at the time i was an energy coach because i was america's number one energy coach yeah i remember. I was america's only energy coach i think at the time (laughs) and the whole idea was that i was going to coach people on their energy and help them with their positivity and negativity and just being their best physical mental emotional and spiritual so that was my sort of branding initially and but the reason why i wanted to have you on is because daniel decker gave me a cd that you um gave a sermon on and it was why i followed jesus And so I listened to that sermon, why I follow Jesus that was delivered by you. And it spoke to me for the first time. So for the first time, I had an understanding of this Jesus that people had talked about. I never knew much about Jesus. I never read the Bible. I never went to church. So I didn't know about Jesus. I knew about Christmas, the birth of Jesus. That's about it. So to me, Jesus was this prophet teacher, as my mom said, Mm -hmm. that some thought he was the Messiah and some didn't. So I heard you talk about it. And that really spoke to me for the first time. So I wanted you on, I think, to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And the one question I remember I, I asked you is, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, sir, are all the people who don't believe in Jesus going to hell?
0: Yeah, you kind of threw me on the bus in the yeah. middle of the interview. Well, I really it. wanted to know that. Okay.
1: But but it wasn't that I was only the I really wanted to know that because that's what I was probably struggling with. Mm-hmm. And I think most people who are seeking have that question, like, okay, is this the only way? And if, if I don't believe, am I going to hell? You know, so it was this mindset of I was really asking more from me, mm-hmm. Because I wanted an understanding of how it all worked.
0: Yeah, the way I remembered is you said, Erwin, uh, you're a Christian, right? right? And I said, well, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. And you said, yeah, so uh, our only Christian is going to heaven. Right. And the rest of us are going to hell. Right. And, um, and I remember saying to you, John, uh, Jesus said he did not come to condemn the world, to, but to bring the world life. And so I'm not going to take on what Jesus would. I'm not, I'm not here to condemn the world. I'm here to bring the world life. And you paused. And you said, oh, "I like that answer. I loved it." <laughs> now I remember the time I loved it. I was like, "Wow,
1: okay, this guy's different." And that's a different thing I ever heard, never heard before about Jesus. So it really, uh, it really spoke to me at that at that point. And that's when my life began to really change in in so many ways. Like really began to change. And it was during that time where I started listening to your sermons, your messages, and. I finally gave my life to Jesus. Mm. And it was 2006, 2006, 2007 wow. when I gave my life to Jesus. So it was several years after I started writing and speaking, and I was speaking on positivity, energy, and yet I would go places and speak, and people would say, wow, like I see God all over you. And one woman came up to me one time, she, I know you've been saved, I can tell. And I'm like, no, no, I haven't been saved, I don't need saving, I'm good. She goes, no, you've been saved. I'll never forget that. People would come up to me after these talks. And Daniel even said, John, I know one day you may never believe, and I'll still work with you. Because Daniel was very spiritual and very, you know, he had a strong faith, Christian faith. But I know one day you're gonna be used by God to share his message. Mm-hmm. I just see it. And I didn't see it at the time, but he believed he saw it.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, that's I would say that's before you actually even knew who Jesus was. Yes, yeah, that was before I knew who Jesus was. So here yeah. I was giving these talks and people would come up to me and say that. And so God knew before I knew. So I, I think this is the almost like the tapping into your genius. Yes. Is that um, the reason people would come up to you and see God is because I think that when, by the way, it is to me so interesting that the whole idea of genius is a, a touch of the divine, that that the ancient Greeks thought that, a genie lived inside of people and that it was given by the gods. Wow. And, and, um, and so even before you come to faith, you're tapping into something that other people are identifying mm-hmm. as in a sense divine or transcendent. Yes. And, um, and, and even though you may not call it that, there is in a sense a genius in the whole idea of, of positivity, mm-hmm. which can be really played into almost like a superficial space of right. you know just positive thinking or just trying to be... You know, positive and and not look at life right. in, in a real way. but but when you look at the spectrum of of the effect of cynicism or or negativity, and you see the effect of optimism and uh, of of positive mindsets, there's no question that they create different kinds of worlds right. And so even before you became, quote, a person of faith, you had already begun to tap into the power of of a positive mindset right it's and and again I love the way you distinguish because you know I obviously know a lot of the nuances of the way you see things um, but you definitely distinguish between ignoring problems and which is not being positive that's right. being uh, that that's being I mean, um unrealistic that's actually living in an illusion right and uh, I think the power of what you really try to bring people to is you can see the problem clearly from a positive mindset. Right. And, and in fact, you may not be able to see it clearly without a positive mindset. Because if you, have a, if you only have a negative mindset, all you see is the problem. Right. But when you come at a problem from a positive mindset, you begin to see the solutions and opportunities in that problem. Mm-hmm. So how did you begin And, and to, the, the yeah. lens in which you yeah. view the world. So, That's right, it's the
1: lens. Yeah. But I want to go back to a second. I remember when I, when I lost my job in the dot-com crash. And I remember crying out to God, I did cry out to God, God help me, provide for me and my family, God, and I will do your work. I remember like saying those things to God. I remember when I lost my job, this incredible feeling came over me that Mm -hmm. said, everything happens for a reason. Like I heard the words, everything happens for a reason. Like, like, so God was already working in my life with what I believe a plan he had for me. And I was tapping and tuning into that. So I was crying out for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that was what I call my surrender moment. Mm -hmm. and coming from my Jewish background where Abraham Abraham had to surrender, I I feel like that was my first covenant where I was surrendering to God. You know, like, all right, God, I just trust in you. I don't know who Jesus is, but I know who you are, and I'm going to trust in you. And that's what happens. So I started started to trust in a greater way. So my positivity wasn't rooted in myself. Mm -hmm. It was rooted in a greater perspective and a greater trust and a greater faith, I would say. So I did have this optimism and belief. So it's the lens in which you view the world, And a lot of times we can look at it, and you talk about this as well, through the pessimistic lens. But pessimists do not change the world. Mm -hmm. Throughout history, the optimists, the believers, the dreamers, Mm -hmm. the doers, those are the ones who have the greatest impact. And so those are the ones we celebrate, the holidays we celebrate. We celebrate MLK Day, but Martin Luther King Jr. was was inspired by Jesus Mm -hmm. and his faith that inspired him to do what he did in this world, right? so that's where i would say i started to find my genius and it happened when i gave my life to god when i surrendered when i made jesus my savior i mean i look back i knew i couldn't save myself that's when i realized i needed a savior because hmm. i wasn't enough for myself and i had been trying to do it all along by myself even though i trusted mm-hmm. you still try to do it, like thinking i gotta do it i gotta do it i gotta do it and then you realize Can't do it alone. I really believe it's why every addiction program believes in a higher power. Right. Because you come to a point where you realize, I can't do this alone. My will isn't strong enough. I need greater strength. I need a greater power. And it's that greater strength, that higher power that gives you the strength you need. Well, I call that higher power Jesus. Mm
0: -hmm. No, it's beautiful. Yeah, That's so, so, so good. John, I still remember in the middle of all that, you sent me an email that I've kept over the last decade um it was a very interesting uh explanation of your process we right can talk about that just for a minute yeah it was,
1: i remember writing the email and i i love doing it i remember listening to your sermons asking god for a sign if there is something to this jesus show me the signs i'm open next thing you know i started to see the signs everywhere i went i saw literal signs <laughs> that said jesus is the answer i'm driving down to orlando i'm looking to the left And I hear, look, I turn to the right and there's a big sign that says, Jesus is the answer. And I said, that's for me. And it kept happening over and over and over again. So I went to go see a Buddhist energy healer. I was having health Mm -hmm. problems, problems with my stomach. And I told him the signs I'd been seeing. I said, what do you make of that? He said, John, yeah. He said, it makes sense. Jesus takes our heavy vibrational energy. He (laughs) said, you can't connect to a, a perfect, harmonious, energetic God if you have this heavy energy, Jesus takes it. He called it soul pain. He takes your soul pain. He goes, Christians call it sin so you can connect. I said, can I take someone else's soul pain? He said, can you handle your own? Wow. He said, Christianity is like spiritual cheating. All you do is believe and receive and you're there. You believe and Jesus takes it. He said, me, <laughs> he goes, I want to see if I can attain enlightenment on my own. I want to do it myself. Mm. And I walked out of there going, this guy's got the answer. He just made so much sense. I believed in a God that would want to save me, that would want to take my burden, that would want to take my pain. It made so much sense. And I walked out of there saying, okay, I'm going to give this Jesus a shot. I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I wrote you an email telling you what had happened with the Buddhist energy healer and all this. You're probably like, what is going on? But you read that letter mm-hmm. in your next sermon the following week because I was listening every week. You were one of the first to do a podcast sermon yeah. years ago. We're talking probably 15 years ago now, 16 years ago, that you were doing that. And I'm listening, and you start reading my letter. I'm like, he's reading my letter. That was just to him, But you read my letter, and that started our relationship, which was funny that you read my letter, because I reached out and said, hey, I'm coming out to LA. I'd love to come by. And I came by, and then you asked me to speak one time at your, at your service to tell my story. Yeah. And I'll never forget what you said. God will use all means to connect to you, and John is a great example because he used a Buddhist energy healer. He used you. He used the signs. He used all these people along the way to to reach out to me to try to connect with me. Mm. And I always believed that there would be a God that would want to do that, and I believe that that's God's nature to do that.
0: Mm, that's so good. All right, I'm gonna uh, kind of shift our conversation a little bit, and we're gonna talk a little about. Um, the genius in you. Okay. And at the same time, I want to give an opportunity to help unlock and awaken the genius in everyone who's mm-hmm. listening. I know that's one of your passions. I love and, that. and and given that, you, you know, when I w- walked into the Nike store years ago and I saw the sign, everyone is an athlete, uh, or if you have a body, you're an athlete. And I'm like, yes and no. <laughs> right? Because yeah, 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 right? you know, uh, I have a body and uh, but I'm not as athletic as I used to be. Right, right. And 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 so the way I, I kind of map that in my mind is, um, everyone has a everyone has a body, maybe an athlete, but they're not an Olympian. Right. And and so we recognize that there are some people who have um, a unique expression of a particular gift, talent, genius, and so we we can identify those more easily. We can see that that uh, Steph Curry is a great shooter. And but um but it or that uh LeBron James is an incredible athlete. And it and it's kind of funny because then you have fans yelling at other athletes on the court, telling them they're bums that are right, not right, good. Right, right. I'm thinking those are the best athletes in the world. Right. Like the worst basketball players on the court are are the best athletes in the world. Oh, yeah. And but in the spectrum of being compared to Michael Jordan or being compared to Kobe Bryant, um, it, they look like they're not as good. Right. And uh, it's the same way with uh, you know with the Picasso, right? There may be a lot of great painters, but then when you put them next to Picasso, they they look mundane or they look average. Mm. And uh, and certainly when you put me against a world class athlete or a world class whatever, um, I look mundane. It's the same way with with that sense of genius, mm. and and so I, I know oftentimes because you're always measuring yourself against the, the better. Um, development of who you are becoming. You don't really compete with other people, you're competing no. with yourself. You're, you're, you're trying to become the best version of John Gordon. And you would never call yourself a genius, but I can tell you that uh, people all over the world have seen genius in you and have been affected by that genius in your life. So I'm gonna ask you just a couple of fun yeah. questions. One, um, if you could have a genius in any realm in life, where, where would you want to wow. have that genius expressed? If I could have any genius. Any
1: genius, right? What would it be? It would probably be an NBA player to have that gift of genius <laughs> to shoot like Steph Curry
0: and have that kind
1: of game. <laughs> that, that's, that's, a,
0: that, that's a pretty enviable... Uh, you, you feel that way too? Uh, well, I, I would... Um, if I... Yes, I would love to come back in another life as <laughs> <with> Steph Curry. <laughs> That'd be pretty amazing. Um, but, you know, I'm inspired by so many people as, as you are. But probably my most iconic historic geniuses, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. Uh, because he, to me, he was a futurist. Right. And then I realized I'm sort of historically attracted to people who have a particular genius, but they apply toward the future. Right. I mean, da Vinci is designing helicopters and submarines. And, right. You know, unbelievable. He's designing before there's even technology imaginable, yes. right, to be able to create those things, which shows me that you can have genius that's out of time. Mm. I, you know, his, his genius... Uh, was out of time because we 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 had not developed as human beings to the place where we were capable of actualizing his genius. Um, That's because time is a human construct, but genius is actually beyond space beyond time. Of time. It's transcendent in right. that sense, and and you know I, I see so many like artists like well whether it's Monet or Raphael or um, that their art oftentimes is either pointing looking backwards looking at what is and giving a fresh interpretation but like picasso seemed to be a futurist
1: Mm.
0: who um, not only saw what was but saw um, what no one else could see and and i think about that even in like music or um like who who are the artists in that particular field that are not just creating beyond our imagination but are also Almost like guiding us into a future we haven't imagined yet. Wow.
1: You know, so where would the artists of, say, the 80s be in terms of when you listen to like 80s rock? Mm -hmm. Like kids even today love that kind of music. That was the kind of music I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And kids today now will love that music. That music is in many ways genius. How it's impacting people even to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, my friends love Pearl Jam. Uh, you love, you know, Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. You look at that; like those guys were clearly geniuses. Would you say in terms of and their rock transcends? Maybe not forever, but certainly their generation.
0: Yeah, like I was on my bike the other day, and I was. Uh, I always have conversations with myself, and so I, the person in my head, asked this question: If you have only one son, soundtrack right. to take into eternity, which one would it be? Right. And for me, it was the Beatles. Wow. And because I look at the, uh, the, the scope of the Beatles' genius, you know, you can, you can s- experience music like I Love the L- Yeah, 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 you know, which is like just fun and, yeah. and light where you can go to Yellow Submarine or you can go to Magical Mystery Tour, you can go to the White Album, and you realize that their music kept evolving and, and it, it feels like it was transcendent. It, it was always creating something that didn't exist yet. Yeah. And, and I'm really drawn to that in, in time and history.
1: I wanna say, just talking about genius, people always say, who do you think is a genius? I think you are a genius, because I think about the work that you've done over the years, and you are the pioneer in this kind of um, modern Christian expression of the gospel, reaching people in a very modern way, in a very hip way, in a very cool way. You look at now, you see Stephen Furtick, you see Rich Wilkerson, Judah Smith, all these people, they're doing What you did years ago, right? I mean, you were doing this years and years and years ago. You were meeting in nightclubs, and no one was doing that. So you saw something before anyone else did. Now everyone accepts it as normal. But I think people forget that you were doing that from the very beginning of, 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 of this movement. Like, you started this movement. You made Christianity modern cool. And you were doing it before there were skinny jeans. <laughs> so, I mean, if you really think about it. So I just, I wanted to say that because that to me is, is genius. Like you saw the future where it was going to reach people in a very modern way. And uh, I just, I, I always think about that because I, I just came from a church where I was speaking and it was a very creative church. And I even brought you up in my talk. I said, I said, before this church, this church wouldn't even be here if Erwin McManus wasn't preaching the gospel in the way he did and sharing the message in the way he did and i believe all modern churches need to understand who the pioneer was and it was you
0: thank you Uh, i appreciate it i know you don't like
1: hear that you're so humble you don't want to hear that but i I have to say that because that's true
0: yeah i remember one time i said to this um really influential like global pastor because he was he had me but he invited me on his tv show and i said today's heresy is tomorrow's orthodoxy and he looked at me and he goes i hope not and uh and i think the reality is that um sometimes our genius comes out because we're the outsider hmm. and we just see things in a new and fresh and unique way and um so but i want to go back okay. to talk a little bit about your genius and, okay all right you can't escape it you you know, have written books on positive leadership you've you've written books on positive teams and and you, you definitely have been branded and marked in the world of positive space. Like, what do you see as the genius of positivity? Like, what, what do you think actually happens when a person begins to make that shift?
1: The genius of positivity is believing in someone or something, and that person's belief or your belief in them helps them become more than they ever thought possible. Like I think of Dabo Sweeney as a leader and a football coach, but Mm. his belief in his team and his players, they accomplish more than they ever thought possible. Mm. So when you believe, leadership is a transfer of belief. Mm. And so when you believe in someone, they rise up and accomplish more than they thought possible. You help them reach not just their potential, but even higher than perhaps what their potential is or what they think it to be. So you move beyond the limits of what's possible. Into areas that people thought were impossible. So, for me, that's what I think is the genius of positivity helping people become all that they're meant to be, helping them do things that they never thought that they could do or would do. And just the idea that, that optimism, like mm-hmm. research from Duke University shows that optimists work harder, get paid more, more likely to succeed in business and sports. And why? Well, the researchers found because they believed in a brighter and better future, they took the actions necessary to create it.
0: You know, it reminds me of this one statement in the Bible um, that has always been one of my favorite declarations where this guy says to Jesus, um, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Mm. And that one really yeah. strikes me because, like, I believe, but I need help in my unbelief. Yes. And, and I wonder if what you're really talking about, you're talking about the transfer of belief, it, it's right there. It's, it's, a, it's a person, a person has to want to believe. Right. You can't impose belief on them and but at the same time there is the sense where it's not just you're helping people do what they could not what they did know they could do i wonder if there's even something more um transcendent than that or metaphysical than that where there are certain things i wouldn't be able to do without your belief added to my life right does that make sense totally to, you know well i mean
1: for me it's i wouldn't be able to be what i am without god's belief Mm -hmm. in me or faith my faith in god and that Mm -hmm. trust and belief i believe that god has believes in all of us in a certain way and and calls out the genius and wants to call it. i believe god sees our genius and wants us to realize that genius Mm -hmm. too often we don't think god can do it or we don't believe we're worthy and so that's why we don't receive Mm -hmm. the gifts and the plan that god has for us that's what i believe so just like that, I believe from a human standpoint, when I see something in you or I believe in you, that you're right, there's something transcendent where that belief, that that confidence, that, that energy somehow is transferred that, wow, someone believes I could do that. Okay. I don't know what it is or how it works, but you're right, there is a transfer.
0: So when you're in the room, something changes. Yes. And you know this. Yes. Like you know that when you're in the room, something is added to the room that wasn't there before you walked into the room. Yes that's to me what your genius is mm. so if uh, one of the questions i used to get to ask uh, ceos when i was younger when i would get to be in the room i would say um what is it what's the one thing that makes you different than everyone else what's the one thing that you're bringing that makes you the ceo of this fortune 500 company what is that one thing that allowed you to take this company from zero to half a billion or whatever it is right like john gordon like in the most objective way, because you know yourself. right? Like, what's the thing that surprises you? Because I, I think that when you do discover your genius, you're actually surprised by it. You're, right. like, you're almost in shock that this is something that exists inside of your soul. Right. You know, what, what is that thing that you, uh, you would definitely say God has placed it in you, but, but what's the one thing that you think, when you enter the room, this is what you're bringing?
1: I am surprised that I do make an impact the way that I do, because I never knew I could And it was really after I found my faith, Mm. that's when I started to realize that genius. I don't know what it is, I don't know what happened, but when I started to live from that incredible faith and trust and confidence, I became someone who could then inspire others, encourage others. So I'm surprised that I do get to work with Clemson, that a coach like Dave Roberts will bring me in, a manager to speak to his team, the Dodgers, and watch that team become a World Series champion, to go speak to the Miami Heat, and guys, resonate with it and then play better because of it. The Tampa Bay Lightning, speaking to them during training camp and they win the Stanley Cup that year. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that those kind of things happen, right? And I'm able to do something that sticks with them and allows them to then perform at a higher level. I'm not the reason, right. I know that, but I'm surprised that I I do bring something that they'll say later on, wow, the energy you brought, like we're still talking about right, it so to this day.
0: What is that something?
1: I think it's belief. I think it's encouragement. I think it's seeing the the world through childlike faith. Because I have childlike faith. Why not us and to believe that it's possible? But it's funny because a lot of times I'll believe in others more than maybe I believe in myself. (laughs) But I'm really good at encouraging others. I want to see people succeed. I root for people to be successful so and i'm not jealous of someone who maybe have more success Mm -hmm. than me you know like patrick lanchione who wrote a book five dysfunctions would technically be more successful in terms of that book so than the energy bus although we're about we always go neck and neck but like i see him being successful and i love watching him do what he does in his in his way Mm -hmm. i don't think i was always like that i think when i was younger i was jealous when i would see Mm -hmm. success i got jealous Mm -hmm. but as i get older i made a decision even seeing you and your gifts and talents i go erwin I can't be Erwin, like what he does on stage, the way he shares that message, I I can't be that, but I can be me. And I can only be me, I can be the best version of me and just do what I'm called to do and focus on my own geniuses, whatever that is. So I guess my I'm surprised by that, but I guess my genius is, yeah, the encouragement and the transfer of belief and energy into others that allows them to believe that they can go do it.
0: It's so good. So someone's listening right now and they want desperately to believe that there's some genius inside of them, something unique, something um, that in a sense is like a fingerprint of God in them that they're supposed to bring as a gift to the world. But they just can't, they're just, it's trapped under right. the rubble of unbelief or failure or self-doubt. Uh, could you give them a couple of steps yeah. to begin the to step toward that gene? We all have it.
1: Yeah. Like we all it's to know that you have it inside of you, that God placed that inside of you. And don't be afraid of it, don't be scared of it, and know that you're worthy, like you are worthy. There's a calling on your life, there's a purpose that you have, and so you should feel worthy. But the key is honestly, take the first step. Mm -hmm. Like I never knew I could write a fable. And I remember walking and praying, and the idea for the energy bus came to me. Mm -hmm. And once it did, I sat down, I started writing. I didn't go, oh, I don't know how to write, I can't write a book. I said, all right, I'm gonna sit and try to write this book and see if I can, (laughs) it just came. The idea just came. So I literally sat down every day and wrote this book. Mm. I don't know what kind of genius that is, but I have a genius where I'm able to write a book in three and a half to four weeks, Mm -hmm. in a short amount of time, but I write every single day. But the first step was to actually sit down and start writing. Not knowing if it was gonna be good or not, I wasn't looking for a publisher, I just started doing the work. And I think that's the key is just take the first step. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you take the first step without really believing, Mm -hmm. but you just take the first step. Mm -hmm. Being willing to fail. Being willing to face rejection and you take the first step. So, I think that's the first key. You take the first step. Then, as you start doing the work, then the key, I believe, is to start actually believing that you can do it. And I think with the work comes a little bit more confidence and belief that, okay, this can be done. Mm-hmm. And then it's to recognize what your gifts are, you know, what your talents are, to understand what those gifts and talents are. Like, I know that even though I teach leadership, you know, my my gift is not necessarily in running an organization. I know that's not my main calling. So I'm not going to spend my life trying to run an organization. Mm-hmm. I'm here to share the message of positive leadership. But I know I need to find someone to run my organization and use their gifts. So I'm really good at delegating with people who have gifts that I don't have. So I think it's recognizing what your gifts are, what your purpose is, what your calling is. What energizes you is a big mm-hmm. part of it too. Right? Yeah. What do you love to do? Because if you don't love it, you'll never be great at it. Mm -hmm. So I think the key is to really find, what is it that you love to do in your life and find ways to do that? Because if you spend your life doing something you don't really love, you're not really gonna become great. I recognize that the restaurant business wasn't for me forever, because I asked myself, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? I'm really good at it. I was good at the restaurant business. We were successful, even when I opened up Moe's. I eventually had four Mm Moe's, so we were making money. Do I want to open 10? Do I want to open 20? Do I want to have 100 restaurants 10 years, 20 years from now? No. I know that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I don't love it. Mm. So I was willing to let go of that, sold them, go into the unknown of saying, okay, now I'm going to write and speak full time and living off that money as it's running out. And then the idea for the energy bus comes to me. So I was willing to just say, I'm not great at this. I'm good at this. I don't love this. What is, what, I'm going to focus on what I do love, even though it may not succeed. And I think that's the key too, is doing what you love.
0: Am I missing anything here? No, this is so good because one of the things I tell people is um, a lot of times we prepare for failure, but we don't really prepare for success. Wow. So, so if you have all the success in the world, will this create the life you want? Right. And most of the time the answer is no. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that's where you've made adjustments in your life. Yes. Uh, you you had different levels of success, but ultimate success in those arenas would not have created the life you wanted.
1: Right. And even even now, I know very clearly that I'm not willing to take this on and that on mm-hmm. because it won't lead to what I ultimately want to do and continue doing. So you don't want the kind of success that actually imprisons you. That's right. Because you build a bigger and bigger organization, for instance, and next thing you know, you're not doing what you love anymore. Mm-hmm. So what good is that? So I, I very clearly keep in mind, OK, I want to continue to do this. I want to do this. And I'm not going to worry about doing that. Too often, we're taking on more and more projects, and then we become miserable. I was with a guy the other day, and he was talking about like the pressure he feels because he has a very uh, you know, wealthy wife from a wealthy family. And he feels like he can't live up to that. I'm mm-hmm. like, but you're so successful in what you're doing <laughs> here. Are you loving what you're doing? Yes, I'm loving what I'm doing. He's like, I'm more successful than I ever thought I'd be. I'm, I've made more money in my life already than I ever thought I would make. I said, so then what are you worried about? Enjoy what you have right now and just keep doing what you're doing. Why are we worried about anything else? That's so good. And that's the way I feel too with my life. Like I've already accomplished more than I ever thought I would in my life growing up. And I make more in a speech now than my parents made all year in their work. Mm-hmm. That surprises me in my life. And knowing that, I know that the rest of my life, I just have to continue doing what I'm supposed to do. And that's writing books, speaking, and hopefully developing leaders around the world.
0: Oh, that's, that's so beautiful. Just one last question, yeah. just for fun. Um, what's one thing in your future that you would still, that you would love to be able to be a part of or get to do? Yeah, so in my just future,
1: dream. yeah, just, just dreaming, definitely would love to, to make a movie based on one of my books training camp most likely or the hard hat about a a young man a true story who died on the field and got hit in the chest Mm -hmm. by a ball and died and yet has left an incredible legacy in so many lives because of the kind of teammate he was Mm -hmm. and so i think doing a movie uh would be would be something on my on my list but again i find as i've already tried to go down that that road it hasn't worked so far but I'm not deterred, I just know the timing isn't right.
0: That's just the story of your life though. Yeah, the timing isn't <laughs> right.
1: The time, and I'm not gonna push it when it's meant to be, it will be, but I'm gonna keep on waiting and, and looking and, and seeing when is that right time, because I know it will happen, just about when.
0: Yeah, you're a blend of if it's meant to be, it will be, right. but you're also a if it's meant to be i'm going to work <laughs> exactly it <laughs> right right i'm going to do the work and then trust
1: at the same yeah. time because yeah. if there's an hour if, if i'm in the movie if i'm on, in the room with a, a, a movie producer mm-hmm. yeah, i'm going to mention it so and have this idea but i'm also not going to push it either because it isn't my primary focus but i would love yeah i would love to do a movie and like damien lillard you know damien lillard wrote you know a great quote for the back of training camp you know my book and so i've talked to him about like this book and If he said yeah i would be an executive producer of this in a heartbeat all right great let's do this let's make this into a movie that might spearhead and say okay let's go do this Mm -hmm. so you never know it's like um it's not that i'm content because i'm not content i really want to continue doing the work that i'm doing so you think my genius if this is this is all about genius you think my genius is is my positivity my encouragement um, is it in any of the book? Is it in the book writing or the
0: process of writing a book? Would you say? See, I, I think all your books are motivated by your desire to inspire, mm. and so all the fables you create, they have an underlying narrative you're trying to figure out how to get the most out of the people who are reading the book. Right, and it's is every book is you having a one-on-one mentoring session with a person through a story through a fable to try to help them remove or unlock negative mindsets that keep them from living the life they're created to live. I think that you, um, you're, you're a person who is running through a prison with a thousand keys to unlock every prison door you can to set yeah. everybody free. And I think that's the genius of John Gordon is wow. you believe everyone has more in them than they know. It bothers you that people don't know how much is in them. And you know that by speaking into their life, you can um, liberate greatness.
1: And what you just said is why I think I love Jesus so much Mm -hmm. and why you bringing Jesus to life for me is such a huge part of my life because to truly unlock the door and give freedom, what is Jesus is the answer to that. He is the key Mm -hmm. that brings you the freedom that you want. So as I'm trying to bring freedom in life, what's the ultimate answer? Mm -hmm. It's Jesus. And yes, I can talk about positivity, which is, is important and leads people in the right direction, but ultimately to really help them be free it's Jesus. Only one came to heal your soul, and it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's pretty cool. What you just said, I get it now. It's like, it makes so much sense. Like, I feel like I know myself better now
0: with <laughs> that. This is great therapy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John, it's been so good. Man, I, can't, I just love the fact that we've had this time to talk about the genius of John Gordon. And uh, I just um, pray that your genius would impact millions of people across the world as they discover the uniqueness that God has placed in them too.
1: I love that. You know, when I'm on stage, you know, I always say the genius is in the audience.
0: Mm.
1: I always say it's, it's not right here, right now. The genius is in the audience. And it's our job to unleash the genius in them. And that's why I'm so excited that you're doing this and your book as well, because it's, it's going to really unleash the genius in so many people, people who don't realize that they have that genius within them. It's going to help them find it and live it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help them live their best life. So I
0: can't wait to share it. No, and that's why I'm excited about the genius of Jesus and and uh, the people who are going to read it and lives going to be impacted by it. I'm Incredible! Excited. Yeah, I can't wait. Hey, thanks so much for being on the episode. Thank you. All right. God bless. God bless. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me today. John Gordon is such an extraordinary human being and I want to encourage you to learn more from him. Pick up his newest book, Row the Boat, or go back to the beginning and pick up The Energy Bus. Or if you want to hear John get into my brain and put it on paper and have a conversation about faith and spirituality, pick up The Garden. Uh, John Gordon has So many resources available and I want you to take full advantage of them. And by the way, I wanna remind you that my book, The Genius of Jesus, releases on September 14th. So if you haven't already pre-ordered it, uh, pre-order right now, order some for your friends, or start a book club. Uh, We're gonna be leading and guiding book clubs across the world, specifically during the month of October. And if you're watching this on YouTube, Would you leave a comment? Let us know uh, what you think. Let us know what has inspired you the most. And if you have different people you'd love for me to interview or subjects you'd like for us to address around the idea of unlocking human creativity, genius, um, then let me know, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you next week on The Genius Of.